Psalm 99. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He dwells between the cherubim, let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is high above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. The king's strength also loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called upon his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. He spoke to them in the cloudy pillar. They kept his testimonies and the ordinance he gave them. You answered them, O Lord our God. You were to them God who forgives. Though though you took vengeance on their deeds, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill. For the Lord our God is holy. It's been a couple years, three years maybe, two and a half years. I've been coming down here. We've been preaching through, I've been preaching through Philippians when I come down here. I haven't been down though just because of a lot of conflicts since January. So this morning I want to do a little bit of a review of Philippians and look at the end of chapter 3. The book of Philippians is about love. It's about biblical love. What does it look like to love somebody? What does it look like to love your wife? What does it look like to love your husband? What does it look like to love your brother here in the church? What does it look like to love your parents or to love your children? We will, we're going to answer that. And the answer is there are, there are certain things that we like to remember that we ought to forget. And there are certain things that we forget about that we ought to remember. So we'll get to that. But follow along now in chapter 1, beginning... At verse 5, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request of you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. This might be the most famous verse in Philippians, except maybe in chapter 4 where it says, Rejoice in the Lord. We like to quote these. But I want you to notice that verse 6, that Paul's confidence in this church is that God has begun a work in them. It was God who began this work, and it is God who's going to complete it until when? Of Christ. Now notice down in verse 9, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in all knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. These two passages here in chapter 1 both have as their focus the day of Christ. They're related, but they're different. The first one is a focus upon God and what God is doing. Paul is confident that God is what he's begun in them. God is going to complete until Christ returns. 
But the second one, the prayer, is about them. It focuses on them. I pray that your love would abound. He wants them to be a loving church. He's really getting toward the situation in chapter 4 where two of the key members in the church are not getting along. He's subtly and carefully working toward that end. But he's laying out his thesis here, and I believe this is what this book is about. It's a love that abounds. It abounds more and more in knowledge. Real love. You know, one of the problems in our culture, we... We have everything is about love, and we've redefined it and dumbed it down and, and made it evil and wicked. We have to come back. When we talk about love, we have to come back to the Bible and to look at the Bible. And what does the Bible say about love? There's pressure on you. There's pressure on your marriage. There's pressure on your church to live with the cultural definition, not the biblical definition. So he says, love has a knowledge. It would abound more and more in knowledge. There is a knowledge that is at the root of that, and that knowledge is in chapter 2. We'll, get, we'll talk about this more. But that knowledge is Christ. What did Christ do? Well, he set aside the privileges of heaven. He took on the form of a servant. He gave himself away. He became obedient, obedient to the point of death. And then what happened? God raised him up. So th- that, that forms the core of the knowledge of this book, though we have many other examples in this book. But that's the core of the knowledge. But it's not just knowledge. You can know a lot of theology and have a terrible marriage. You can know a lot of theology and be a fighting church. Why? Well, he says it's knowledge, that discernment. We have to take what we know and we have to discern the situations and the, the, the things that we find ourselves in, how does this knowledge that we understand about Christ, how does that apply to my marriage? How does it apply in this church? It takes discernment. Why? So that you may approve the things that are excellent. Just to know and to know and to have discernment, it takes action. You have to put that on the line. See, it was Christ who put his life to the point of death. So we have to discern and we have to be willing to put ourselves to discern the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. This this is what we have to do. This is what we're called to do. But notice, it's not just a moralistic exhortation. Notice this next phrase, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So he comes back to what he said earlier in verse 6, that as Christ has worked in them, being confident of the work of Christ, this love and discernment and approving the things that are excellent and being faithful in it are to be until the day of Christ. And it is Christ working in us and through us that this is going to come about. Now, if you'll turn with me over to chapter 3. And I'd like to begin at the beginning of the chapter. Verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. 
though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else, he may have confidence in the flesh. I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So Paul had a resume that was impeccable in terms of the outward workings of the law. But then he makes this amazing statement, verse 7, but what things were gained to me, those have counted loss for Christ. All this moral work and all this excellent, he counted as nothing for Christ. Yes, indeed, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul is saying, I used to have this resume, and it looked mighty good on the outside. He said, but now I have a resume. It's one word. That resume is Christ. That's my resume. It's Christ. What do I have? I have Christ. And that's what he joys in. Now notice, as we look at the text for today, not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I told you offering and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven from which also from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Let's pray. Lord, what a privilege to come before you and your word this morning. We pray that you would take the words that I use and give, you would use them for your kingdom and for your glory, that your name may be lifted up, that your kingdom may come, and that your will would be done on the earth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Afghanistan's been on the forefront of our minds the past few weeks. The issue in the minds of most is, did we get all the Americans out? 
nations and rulers have a duty. They have a moral obligation to take care of their citizens. We've seen how lightly in this country we take that duty. Political expediency has replaced moral obligation. But that should not surprise us. We murder a million children a year with abortion. One-third of those are black, and we call it a right. We call it a choice. How perverted, how morally bankrupt. We as a country have embraced LGBT plus ideology. We call biological men women and biological women men. We have become totalitarian in forcing everyone to use the proper pronouns and open up all restrooms and dressing rooms to accommodate this perversion. So why should it surprise us that our leaders have little sense of moral obligation to tell the truth? We say one thing one day, another thing the next day, and we have no conscience about the truth. This morning I want us to look at a different kingdom, a different state, a different citizenship. In Philippians 3, Paul says that we as believers in Christ, we are citizens of heaven. We have a king who has a perfect list of every citizen, and he is coming to rescue them from the present evil age. He will leave not one citizen behind. Not only will he not leave one citizen behind, but he will transform our mortal bodies into glorious bodies, like to the body which Christ had after the resurrection. This morning, I want to, my main point is the fact that we are citizens of heaven. And if so, how then should we live, to borrow from Francis Schaeffer? We are citizens of heaven. Therefore, how should we live? I want to look at this passage, Philippians 3, 12 to 21, under three headings. The first one is in verses 12 to 14, and the focus there, Paul, is to press on, press on to the future, to the upward call of God in Christ. The second thing that he says in verses 15 and 16 is we are to have this mind, or we are to think like this. We've looked at Philippians and all the way through this book. That's a key theme. We look, we talked about it in 1, 9 to 11. How you think, the knowledge, the discernment, how you put it together. He's in, exhorting them again to have this mind. And he's telling them both at the same time, do not forget the past. Do not forget how you thought and the kind of thinking that you had. At the same time, he's telling them, forget the past. Let go of your resume. Let go of any resume of self-righteousness that you might use in your relationships. And then the third point in verses 17 to 21, he's exhorting them to follow his example. So let's look at the first point. He's pressing on to the future in verses 12 to 14 of chapter 3. Notice verse 12, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Notice that phrase, not that I have already attained or am already perfected. That's an amazing statement. It might just run by you. Think about who's saying this. 
This is the Apostle Paul, who is perhaps the most significant man in Western history, if not in the history of the world, apart from Jesus Christ. Moses, David, Elijah, Paul. The last 2,000 years, the man with the most impact on the world is this man. And yet, what does he say? He's let go of his resume. Not that I've attained. Not that I've perfected. You see, the work of God, you can't always package it. You can't always predict it. And what we like to do is we like to, we like to create our own resume. And we like to use that resume in relationships. Well, I've done this, this, and this. You haven't done this, this, and this. We like to fight each other with our resumes. Paul saying, I haven't attained. I've let go of everything. You see, the real value of life is not in what you do. It's in what God does with it. It's in what God, you see, Christ, the glories of heaven, he came, he poured himself out. What happened? God raised the dead. That's the secret of the church. That's the secret of marriage. It's the secret of churches. When people give themselves to one another and to the kingdom, and they look to God to raise the dead. And notice what he says in the second half of that verse. I press on that I may take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Think back to those passages in chapter 1 that we read and the focus on the day of Christ. Paul is thinking in the back of his mind here. He's thinking Christ has laid hold of him for that day of Christ. The focus in this book is the day of Christ. Turn with me back to chapter 2 and let's look at verse 16. Let's begin back at verse 12 and read there. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. See, right after Paul gives this example of Christ, he goes back to them. says, as you have obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in absence Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul is not giving some kind of work salvation. He's talking about relationships. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 2, he in verse 2, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. And then he gives... The key example, Christ who left heaven and came to earth and poured himself out. And in response to that, verse 12, Beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. You see, the situation, the relationships there in Philippi are strained. And he's saying, Based upon Christ. That is that discernment. That is that understanding what is good and doing it. Now notice verse 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing. That you may become blameless and harmless. Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Where is Paul's focus there? Again, the day of Christ. 
And I think that's what's in the back of his mind here in chapter 3 in this in these verses 12 to 14. Notice though it's focused on the future, not the past. But notice he's not counting. He's forgetting the past. Verse 13, brethren, I do not my count myself to have apprehended. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Paul is not spending time and energy evaluating his resume. Well, you know, we've established churches there, here, and there, and that's going to become the heart of the Christian church throughout the Mediterranean. No, he's letting go of all that. Notice the goal, verse 14. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul has a focus, is a goal. The goal is worthwhile. The prize, the reward that comes from attaining the goal. Press, the goal causes him to focus all his energies on that goal. And what is that goal? The upward call of God. It is the day of Christ. He's living not for what can accrue to him, not for who can pat him on the back, not for who can like him. He's living for the day of Christ. All right, so we've looked at this first section. Paul's emphasis, press on to the future. Let's look at the next section in verses 15 and 16. Have this mind, or we might rephrase it, think like this. Think like this. Or we might also phrase it, do not forget the past. We said there are some things that you ought to forget. We like to remember. We like to create our resume. We like to use our resume. Paul is saying, let go of the past. Let go of that resume. Forget that. But there are other things that come from the past that we need to remember. And that's what he's exhorting them to here in verses 15 and 16. Notice, therefore, let us as many as are mature have this mind. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. The mind, thinking, knowledge is a theme that comes through over and over and over and over again. We read from the beginning of chapter 2. We read about the mind of Christ. Have the mind of Christ. Paul is saying, keep that in your forefront. Make that your focus. The mind of Christ who left heaven, who set aside all the benefits and the glories of heaven. He came to earth and he poured himself out as a servant. Now what hinders us from that? Well, it's a fear. What happens if I just give myself away and nobody notices? Nothing happens. See, that's where his focus is on the day of Christ. Because you see, you go back to chapter 2, verse 17. Paul says, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Think about that. Think about that sometimes when you're wrestling with a relationship, when you're in a difficult situation. Could you rejoice if you're poured out as a drink offering? What's a drink offering? Well, it's something of value, wine or an oil. And what did the priest do? He took it into the temple and he poured it out on the ground. He wasted it. It just went on the ground. It's lost. It's gone. 
Paul says, if I'm a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I will rejoice. How could he rejoice if his work in Philippi is wasted? It's like a drink offering. It's wasted there. How can he rejoice? Because as with Christ, God raises the dead. You see, there is no waste in the kingdom. And whatever you are, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, and however difficult it may be, and however difficult it may seem, and you think, I'm just doing this, and nothing's happening. Nothing nothing is coming about by it. Is it a drink offering to God? And you can rejoice. Why? Because there is no waste before the God. On the day of Christ, it's going to be recognized, and it's going to be honored. Notice verse 16. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Paul, over and over again, comes back to how we think. How do we think about these things? How do we perceive our relationships? How do we perceive our work? How do we perceive the church? How do we perceive our marriage? Are we looking at it from the world's perspective? Are we listening to Oprah? Are we listening to the movies and the songs that are teaching us about love and marriage and relationships? Or do we have the mind of Christ? Are we living like Christ who gave himself? He set aside heaven and he gave himself and he poured himself out for the kingdom. All right, that's our second point. Let's look at our third point. Paul in the first section said, press on to the future. Keep your eyes on the day of Christ. The second point, he said, think like this. Have this mind. Do not forget the past. Do not forget what you did in your earlier days and how you thought about Christ and how you willingly gave yourself up for the kingdom. Don't let go of that. The third point here is Paul exhorts them to follow his example. Notice verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who walk as you have us for a pattern. Remember back in chapter 1 where he said, I pray that love would abound with knowledge and discernment that you may approve what is excellent. One of the tools, the tools in the book is the knowledge is the focus upon Christ, but the discernment is to not just is to look at Christ, but also to look at Paul. We've seen through this book how in chapter 1, Paul holds out his example to the church in Philippi of what's going on for him in Rome. He's in jail. He's a missionary. He's shut down, right? No, but he's filled with joy. Why? Because he has a gospel focus. The gospel is going forth. People are talking about Christ. Even those who don't necessarily like Paul, they preach Christ out of envy and strife, and yet they're preaching the gospel. And the church, he's excited because the gospel is going forth. You see the joy. So often our joy is a self-focus. I'm joyful because I'm winning. People are liking me. Nice things are happening to me. There's not a focus on the gospel. Biblical joy is rooted in the gospel and the going forth of the gospel. And it is to this example of how 
how he has put aside all his resume, even his resume as a Christian missionary and as an apostle. He's put all that aside. He has a resume of one word. I have Christ. That's what concerns me. He's saying, brethren, follow this example. And you might say, well, isn't that pride? No, think back to chapter 1, verse 6, being confident that he who began a good work in you will complete it. Paul is saying, God is at work in my life. Observe that. Chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. Love abound, knowledge and discernment to prove what is excellent. These things are coming about by Christ. He's saying Christ is at work. He's not saying Paul's great. He's not saying look at me. He's saying look at Christ. And look at what Christ is doing here. See Christ in what he's doing. Notice verse 18 because it's a solemn. For many walk, whom I told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. We do not live in a tiptoe through the tulips kind of world where everything turns out like Disney, where everything is lovely. No, we live in a world where there is a conflict. Someone said of the Psalms, every Psalm has a conflict in it, except maybe three or four. There is conflict in this world. And Paul is saying to this church in Philippi, these things I'm saying to you are not just a matter of my writing something down on paper. They're enemies. And they are out to destroy the work of Christ. You might say, well, who are those enemies? You might say, well, think about the sinners. Think about the prostitutes. Think about the drug dealers. Think about who the enemies of Christ and Paul are in the New Testament. The enemies of Christ are the Pharisees. The Sadducees, the scribes, they have, they have resumes that are impeccable on the outside. But before God, they're the enemies. They are the evil workers. They are the false circumcision of chapter 3, the beginning. Why? Because they look to themselves. It's not about God. It's not about the worship of God. When we started this morning and talked about the worship of God, one of the things that the church needs so badly, I'm not criticizing you per se, just in general, we've lost the sense that worship is in the presence of God. We come into His presence. How do we come into His presence? Do we come into His presence, well, Lord, I'm really glad to be here this week. I prayed a lot. I read the Bible a lot. I witnessed to people. I didn't fuss at my wife. Do we come before the presence of God? with our own righteousness, then we are cultivating a mindset that is an enemy of the cross of Christ. Why did Christ die on the cross? He died for sinners. He died that sinners might have life. Who are the great sinners in the Bible? They're the Pharisees. They're the Sadducees. They're the scribes. On the outside, they have perfect resumes but Jesus said inside they're full of dead men's bones see when Luther in his 95 theses said when Jesus came and preached repentance repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand he meant that all of the Christian life is one of repentance 
And then Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he shows us what that looks like. You see, the Pharisees had built boxes. They, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit murder. And the Pharisees could check that box off. We have not committed murder. But, but I say to you, he who is angry with his brother has committed murder in his heart. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. We have a little box here and we haven't committed it. But I say to you, he who has looked on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery already in his heart. You see, beloved, you don't have to go out and become a prostitute or a drug dealer or a murderer to have sin, to be active in repentance. And Paul is saying here, if you're not active in repentance, who you are before God based upon your heart, based upon the thoughts of your heart. Paul is saying you're an enemy of the cross. You're a sinner. There are, there's no one on the face of the earth who escapes sin. There is no one who escapes the need of the cross. There is no one who gets beyond that. And so to come humbly before God, to confess our sin. Paul says the enemies of the cross are those who are self-righteous, who are working and are putting their resume in their own righteousness. Notice verse 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Paul says, you set your mind on earthly things. When the day of Christ comes, you're going to be missing. You're going to be sorely short on the day of Christ. You see, there's going to come destruction on those whose God is their belly, whose focus is on themselves, whose glory is in those things that they have made up on their resume to count, to show themselves how great they are. God. As opposed to those who have a resume of one word. What is that? I have Christ. <laughs> I have everything I need. So if I have Christ, you know what that does? Frees me to be honest. I can be honest. So Lord, Pete and Brenda, 50 years, we've celebrated just ours 51 years. Such a magnificent woman God has given me to live with me and our children. And yet, what can I think at times? How can my anger grow at times? You see, if I don't have Christ, I can't get away from it. <laughs> it's a sin that I can't get away from, from a holy God. And if I try to justify, if I try to rationalize it, where am I headed? My end is destruction. My God is my belly. But notice the contrast, verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We live as Christians for the day of Christ. We live in this world, but we are citizens of heaven. This is a spiritual citizenship. 
We are seated in the heavenly places. We worship God in heaven. These spiritual exercises are dependent on our belief of the truth. Not our feelings about the truth, but our belief of the truth. We are waiting citizens. Paul says we eagerly wait the day of Christ's future when the greater reality, Christ the King, will overtake and conquer the lesser reality, Satan's rule in the earth. Christ is risen. 1 Corinthians 15, he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Notice the last thing in verse 21, the purpose of this future citizenship. God's going to transform our lowly bodies that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. God is going to take these bodies of sin and weakness, disease, and he's going to transform them into bodies that are like Christ. Notice, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. The one who created the heavens and the earth, he spoke them into existence in the space of six days. He's going to come to you. And in the moment, he's going to transform your sinful, weak, maybe even perhaps dead body into a glorious body like unto Christ, according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. In conclusion, I would like to go back to that assurance of pardon in Isaiah 57:15. Let me read it. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. And with him who has a contrite and a humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Beloved, God dwells in two places. He dwells in a high and a holy place. It's high and it's holy. We could never approach it on our own. But he also dwells with him who has a contrite and a humble spirit. He dwells with the one who is who is willing to confess his sin and to be humble, to be who he really is. He dwells there. So we come to this word of God that we have heard this morning, that we might learn. We might learn contrition and humility. Do we struggle with focusing on our own resume? I do. And I'm sure you do as well. The church in Philippi was struggling with that focus. And the word this morning has humbled us. It has given us something to be contrite about. It's given us something to confess to God. Do we struggle with defending our own turf? Do we struggle with living for this life only? Yes. These are matters of contrition and humility. But notice it doesn't stop there. It's to revive the spirit of the humble. 
You see, the Pharisee wants to find joy in himself. That's a fading, fleeting. It's an impossible source of joy. The source of joy for Paul in Philippians is God. The God who raises the dead, you see. And so we come to the gospel. God's purpose in dwelling, in indwelling the contrite and humble is to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the spirit of the contrite. Beloved, I encourage and I challenge you to take the gospel. Let the law do its work in your heart. Let the law show you who you are. Take it to Christ. Be contrite. Be humble because God's presence will be there with you. When you're having a bad week, when you're having a bad day, come to this verse. Work on contrition. Work on humility. The God of heaven and earth will strengthen you. He will build your heart. Let's pray. Lord, there there are none of us here this morning who do not need your word. We pray that this quick view through Philippians would minister to hearts. We pray for families. We pray for marriages. We pray for this church. We pray for churches that are impacted through these things. We pray for your kingdom, Lord, and the glory of your kingdom. We pray that we might recover the joyous message of Philippians that you raise the dead. We serve a God who raises the dead and who will transform our vile bodies into glorious bodies like Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, help us to live for the day of Christ. Help us to let go of today. Not to be irresponsible, but, Lord, just to let go of any need to build a resume. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.